Welcome to the PPA Scotland Magazine Stories podcast. I am your host, Laura Kelly Dunlop. I'm a journalist and the business manager for PPA Scotland. For Magazine Stories, I interview some of the most interesting and brilliant people working in our industry. I discover anecdotes and advice that shine a light on how magazines work. It's a chance to learn from some of the best in the business. For this edition of Magazine Stories, we're very lucky to have nabbed some time from PPA's Chief Executive, Barry McElhenney, in his last week in that role. Barry has a truly enviable career. He edited smash hits, launched Empire, Heat and the French edition of FHM, and he held a series of senior management posts at EMAP. Offering a small window into Barry's life, our interview today features the Oscars red carpet, editing advice from Warren Beatty, and the time a design decision enraged David Bowie. As he points out, Barry has come a long way from his origins in North Belfast. Thank you very much for joining me online for this episode of Magazine Stories, Barry. Um, we're actually speaking on your second to last day as CEO of PPA. So, I know, um, it's a sad time for me and for, for the team here. Um, but tell us a little bit about how you're feeling. Well, I mean, it's, it is a very weird time, Laura, isn't it? Um, not, 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 not just uh, my second last day, but with everything else that's going on at the moment. And also, of course, tomorrow... Tomorrow is going to be the PPA Festival at Tobacco mm-hmm. Dock, um, at which would have been my sort of official easing back from the chief executive role into this sort of new part-time consultancy role. So, I mean, anyone who has been to Tobacco Dock to the PPA Festival will, will know what, what a big deal that is. There are normally about mm. 700 people there. So I think tomorrow morning... It will be, be a very strange experience. Not nothing, really, not really so much to do with my last day, but to do with the fact that, oh my God, we're all meant to be in Tobacco Dock, you know, having the, the fun that we always have there. Uh, and I was talking yeah. to Owen. I was talking to Owen Meredith, our managing director at the PPA, yesterday. And I said, I may well get up. Uh, I may well get up at the normal time tomorrow and do my thank you, do my opening speech anyway, <laughs> just in my bedroom, <laughs> thank our business and. Denmore and all of our members and do a bit of housekeeping. <laughs> yeah. Just go back to bed and sob silently at the fact. That yeah, let everyone know what the hashtag is let if they want to join know. in on social media. I mean, we had such a show lined up, but I guess, I guess if I've learned anything over the last 10 years in the PPA job, it, it has always been to sort of accentuate the positive, you know, with, with, yeah. without closing one's eyes to the reality. Um, and that's been a challenge over 10 years, you know, accentuating the positive at certain times. And I think, you know, the positive here is we will have the festival to end all festivals in 2021. Um, and we've just got to focus, I think, in a minute and getting through this safely yeah. uh, and getting out the other side and regrouping and, uh, and starting again, really. And I'll still, you know, very much be there at the festival next year. But thankfully, to be honest, I won't be the person getting up for the 11th year in a row and telling you where the toilets are. Yeah, indeed. And you've mentioned a little bit there about accentuating the positive. Yeah. How has um, PPA been responding to the coronavirus pandemic? I, th- I think like everybody, we've done we've done a fantastic job, you know, in really difficult circumstances. So I suppose the first thing 
the first thing we thought, like everyone, was what are we going to do with our staff? You know, are, are we going to be okay? Where are we going to where mm. are we going to work? And when it became obvious that we could no longer work at the office, um, you're making sure that everybody was equipped at home and was safe at home and was able to have the technology available to be able to mm. produce all the things that the PPA you know carries on producing. So there was a sort of internal uh, exercise, and then I guess externally striking that balance really, which again is something that we're used to doing between being the, being there for the industry as the industry body, but without getting in people's way. You know, so there was probably mm. a period the first week or two where the last thing we 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 reckoned that people wanted to hear was, "Hey, hey, it's the PPA here. You know, the festival's not happening this year." So we, we sort of stepped back for a week or two while people dealt with the severity of the first 10 days, let's say. And mm-hmm. then as time has gone on, has started to emerge a bit more. We have a hub, coronavirus hub, for all publishers to access and look at. There are a lot of meetings, as you can imagine, going on behind the scenes about supply chain, mm-hmm. about advertising. And then there's also just, yes, our own activities. So we did... We started up a thing called, we used to do a thing called PPA Live, where I would, in the flesh, interview leading lights in our industry. We've resurrected that online. And mm-hmm. I did an interview last week with Paul McNamee, editor of the yep. Big Issue, and we had, you know, 130, 140 people in the room, so to speak. Um, so all manner of activities. Uh, but, but, but I guess the underlying message is, we'll get through this together. You know, there will come a point where it will be back to some kind of normal and the PPA will be there for you as soon as that happens. Excellent. So I'm going to leave behind the kind of um, the moment that we're in, mm. as it were, um, for a little while to to go back to what is our normal magazine stories chat. You have a hell of a career, so <laughs> it would be remiss of me not to go back to, to the beginning. We are, as I understand, in your 40th year God, in the media yeah. this year, yeah. which is amazing. I um, started very young. But, I was a child bride, yeah. Yes, that's it. <laughs> and uh, But how did you get your start clearly at about four years old in the industry? Uh, I didn't really know anybody in the industry. I suppose that's the first thing to say. Um, mm. I, for some reason, always had this desire to work in magazines and to be a journalist. And I don't really know where it came from. I still don't know. You know, none of my family were journalists. I didn't know any journalists. As you will know, Belfast is not exact, was not exactly in the 70s, a media epicenter. Um, mm. You know, there's a lot of reporters coming in, but there wasn't, there, there was just, if, if you'd said, okay, you want to become a journalist, you go and ask somebody, I wouldn't have known who to ask. So, yeah. Um, I started writing at a really young age. I was one of those kids that people will be familiar with who would, who would literally be bottom of the class at everything apart from English, where I'd always be top of the class. So I'd, be, mm-hmm. you know, I'd score six out of a hundred in biology and science and physics, but on English, for some reason, I was able from an early age to kind of spell and put words together. I think I had very good teachers in that side of things. So, I always wanted to write, and I was always able to at least, you know, put words in the right order. Um, And I started writing reviews of bands that would come into Belfast, of whom there were not many. Mm. At the time, this is sort of the end of the 70s. Um, And sending them off to local publications, you know, national publications. Um, And I think think the big thing looking back was I, I... 
I was probably about 13 or 14 when the NMA, the New Musical Express, was was heading its its purple patch of the early 70s. And I, I just mm-hmm. ignored the NMA. And it, 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 I think it probably offered a kind of escape out of the reality of early 70s North Belfast. And I started writing letters to the NMA. Uh, and they started printing them. Um, so I was having these letters printed on like a weekly basis. I was 13, 14. Wow. From BMAC, Belfast. Um, <laughs> and I had one of those wonderful Proustian moments recently where James Hyman, who, who set up, the, who's got the world's largest magazine collection, uh, and he's mm-hmm. been digitizing it. He's quite involved with the PPA. And I said to him, you, do, you wouldn't be able to find the letters I wrote, would you? At the age of thirteen, to the enemy from my little bedroom in twenty-two Southport Street, Belfast, and he said, "Well, leave it with me." And of course, he went into his digital file and he sent me the letters. And I mean, I just literally, you know, stopped me in my tracks, and I was, wow. uh, you know, tears in the eyes as I read these letters that I had composed right at the height of the troubles. Kind of really surreal mm-hmm. stuff it was, you know. Um, uh, which the enemy had pr- had printed every week, and they got to a point where they said to me, "Okay, the job's yours if you want it." You know, and I don't know to this mm-hmm. day if that was a a joke or not, but I I was not going to leave Belfast at fourteen and go and work yeah. the, go and work for the enemy. I went off to university in Dublin. I started writing for the local for the I started up a university magazine, and I guess that mm-hmm. first. That was the first time where I thought maybe I could do this. You know, maybe, maybe I could actually make a living out of this. I mean, you then spent through the eighties doing some of the the best jobs that there are yes. in magazines. And um, but I I do wonder at the outset, do you think that your your Belfast upbringing was a help or a hindrance to you? As people will be able to hear from my accent, I am also from Belfast. I actually think it was probably a help. Uh, in a funny kind of way, I think if you grew up where we grew up at the time that I grew up in, you did get a certain resilience and a certain um, inner grit, I suppose, so that mm. when you would then enter the world of the media and somebody would be getting in a flap about, I don't know, the bike is late to pick up the transparencies, you'd, you'd think, hang on a minute, you know. In the grand scheme mm. of things, I think we're going to be okay here. I suppose it gave it gave you yeah, gave me a certain toughness. Um, it also was a useful point of difference, if you want to put it like that. In that, a I was able to review bands that, as I say, were coming to Belfast, which, which had a certain cachet, I think, to the national magazine to publish that. Um, mm. And I think b I was able when I arrived in London. There was, there was a sort of core of Irish groups starting to emerge, most obviously you 2 mm-hmm. but also people like the Pogues. Um, and, and you'd had the undertones, you'd had stiff little fingers. So, um, And I knew these people, you know, through just growing up around them. Mm-hmm. Nobody at that time really wanted to go on the road with the Pogues because it wasn't <laughs> apparent that the Pogues were going to become the sensation that they became. In fact, they were still known as Pogue Mahon. Um, uh-huh. And I, I think I got these gigs to some extent because nobody else wanted to do them, you know. So I would find myself <laughs> at 20, 22, 23 years old, living in London. I'd moved over to London, um, going in a minibus around Germany 
with the Pogues, you know, um, <laughs> to write, you know, a page and a half in the, in the next issue of the Melody Maker. So I'm sort of condensing a lot that happened around that time into yeah. a short period of time. But that's really what started happening. I started writing about these groups. The Melody Maker started publishing them. God bless them. They eventually offered me a job. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of it all took off very, very quickly at that point. Wow, yeah. I mean, you, The Melody Maker's an incredible magazine and that was a brilliant time for it. But you will not be surprised that um, the next leap is particularly <laughs> of interest to me. You made the leap to edit one of my favourite magazines of all time, Smash Hits, um, which, I mean, you were only 26. Um, so tell I us how you managed that. Well, <laughs> it seems, it seems straight, even stranger as the years go on, you know. Because I was only three years off the boat from Belfast, you know, I'd only come over, <laughs> I only came over in '83, and in '86 I'm editing Smash Hits, and I, I think a couple of things happened. I think I'd started getting my name around in what was quite a small world. You had the anime, mm. you had Melody Maker, Sounds, Smash Hits. You would meet, you know, people from those all those magazines on press trips, and you, you knew the publicist at the record company. So I think if you were if you were reasonably okay at what you did, um, you started, you know, you were one of those people who was in that kind of frame for when a job mm. like the editor of Smash Hits come up. I think the other big thing that happened to me was in 1985, while I was on The Melody Maker, um, the editor, one of my early mentors, the great Alan Jones, the Jones boy, he said to me, there's this concert happening at Wembley Stadium. Bob Geldof's organised it. Um, nobody else wants to go because it's on a Saturday. Uh, <laughs> and we're not paying time and a half. You know, you're going to have to... I mean, literally. <laughs> it's called Live Aid. Um, and I said, I'll do that. You know, and he said, okay, you've got to go all day to Wembley Stadium uh, and sit there. You know, you've got a press pass. Um, and it won't finish about midnight. And you've got to turn it around because the building maker used to go to press on a Monday. Or yeah. be on sale on the Tuesday afternoon. And I went, uh, I, as I say, it was largely because the older members, the older married members of Melody Maker didn't want to give up their Saturday. Nobody had any idea of what it would be like. And I went to the old family, mm. you know, and, and sat there and watched the entire thing, you know, status quo, Queen, McCartney, you know, and realised that something was happening. I wrote it up. And, I mean, this, this is like a, whole, a Hollywood story at this point. I then win, yeah. I win a PPA award for that piece. I, yeah, I went yeah. as the PPA Young Journalist Award. So by the end of 85, I've sort of, I'm an award-winning, you know, 24, 25-year-old Melody Maker journalist. And then when mm -hmm. the job becomes vacant, I'm clearly one of however many, I don't know, to be interviewed for that job. Uh, and that was in September, October 86. And I went for the interview at David Hepworth's house, David up mm -hmm. kind of editorial director. And it was all very cloak and dagger. Uh, it was a Sunday evening, you know, and I was I was almost driven there in a blacked out, you know, marina almost. Uh, but it was like, <laughs> nobody must know, because at the time I'm still working for the opposition. Yeah, um, yeah. And I remember doing the interview, and I remember going back to, the, to my partner at the time and saying to her, well, that's that. I'm never getting that job. That was, that was a disaster. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> You know, a week later, they're going to be up and say, would you like to come back in again, you know, and we'll talk the terms. And I, I don't know, as I say, to this day, I'm still too frightened to ask them in case, in case they take it away from me. 
But I, <laughs> I don't know if it was like Hollywood, I suspect, where, you know, you try to get De Niro. You can't get De Niro, so you get Pacino. And if you can't get Pacino, you try for Joe Pesci. And I don't, yeah. I don't know. I think I might have been Joe Pesci. It might have been a couple of people. Um, I don't know. I never asked. They called me back in and they said, uh, we'd like to offer you the job as editor as far as And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, I would like to point out, though, that um, that phrase, the phrase, I'll do that, is <laughs> the, very much... It's like one of the cornerstones of making it as a journalist, I think, is that phrase, I'll do that. That is my entire career is also based upon a couple of moments where I said, I'll do that. It's exactly that. I mean, both with live aid, with everything, really, you know, with everything just saying, yeah, I'll, I'll give that a go. And to some extent with the job, with the whole job at Smash Hits, you know, I, I, I always say to this day, I wouldn't have hired me, you know. Um, <laughs> there was something about me that they liked the, sh the look of and I didn't probe too deeply and mm. was I hopelessly underqualified and inexperienced for it absolutely you know but that sort of give this a go I'm being surrounded by some brilliant people really helped but I, I remember just one final thing about the interview because um, mm. Dave Hepworth you know who who I probably learned more from than anyone over the last 40 years um Dave's theory was always that what makes a magazine editor is, is not what you put in the magazine. It's what you leave out. You know, it's mm. all about editing. It's all about what doesn't go in. Um, and I still remember to this day at, at the job interview, he said to me, he said, so, he said, so we're putting together an issue of Smash Hits. I was like, yes, yes, what's he going to ask? And he said, uh, it's an eight-page issue rather than the normal 100 pages. Whoa. What, what goes in? I just remember thinking, I've got no idea, you know. And, <laughs> and yeah, this is, this is like having to think on your feet. Of course, it's a brilliant question mm. to ask anyone at any time because because it makes you focus absolutely on what are the absolute essentials of this magazine. Like mm -hmm. the Smash Hits case, you know, it's the front cover, the posters, the song words, you know, maybe the RSVP page, you know, maybe yeah. maybe the letters page. It wasn't. It wasn't the three page. Q&A with John Bon Jovi, important though that might have been, you know. Um, Pretty important to me, to be honest, Barry, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> so I was going to say Robert Smith, and I thought better. Um, I must have got it right, but it's a question I ask people to this day, you know. Um, it, what would you put in if you only had eight pages? I mean, Smash Hits, you you pioneered um, an irreverent style of music journalism, sort of constantly cocking a snook at any of the kind of perceived pomposity. <laughs> How did you cultivate that atmosphere for journalists and for the magazine? I think, I think to be fair, it was already there when I got there. I mean, it was already... Smash Hits had been going for about seven years when I arrived. Mm -hmm. And you already you had some of those key people. Um, it certainly accentuated on my watch. And again, largely because of the people I brought in. So, there were, so mm -hmm. I, you know, people like Sylvia Patterson, um, yeah. Chris, yeah. Chris Heath. Uh, I always think, you know, a, a, a good sign of, of a successful title is is what do the people go on to do? You know, mm -hmm. almost almost every single person I work with at Smash Hits has gone on to have, you know, a pretty big career in one form or another, you know. There was a kind of a collective worldview um, around Smash Hits that was, that was there when I arrived, but which, which took off over the next two to three years. 
mm-hmm. which I would argue is a worldview that you can still see across yeah. a host of magazines and across Fleet Street in particular. You know, if you no, look, absolutely. If you look at a lot of the supplements or the, or the sort of, you know, the, the, the G2 times two daily supplements or the Sunday mm-hmm. magazines, smash hits run through them like a, like a stick of rock, you know? With smash hits, mm. do you think that you ever went too far? Um, <laughs> I, I remember we did a... The, the, the problem with smash hits or the challenge of smash hits would be when you come up across the really big, the big beasts, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say David Bowie. Um, yeah. So David Bowie, obviously, if you can imagine David Bowie, you know, by... I was editor of Smash It from 86 to 89. So by, mm-hmm. you know, by 1986, David, David Bowie's already had, you know, five careers. You know, he's already, he's already, he's already David Bowie. You know, his, his place mm-hmm. in history is secure, you know. So, but the people around David Bowie, and obviously the record company in particular, would always want David Bowie to, to, to be out promoting his latest album, you know, which in the late 80s, I suppose, would have been heading towards sort of glass spider, mm. tin machine. Not on a personal level, I would say, his, his, most, his most glorious period, but an interesting period nonetheless. The point being that David Bowie doesn't really want to talk to Smash Hits. He doesn't have to talk to Smash Hits, <laughs> you know, because, yeah. because he knows that Smash Hits are going to insist that he plays the game. Mm-hmm. And, and the game would be, yes, it'd be great if David Bowie didn't cover, but we want to have him bursting out of a birthday cake saying hello <laughs> hello Ziggy Stardust or something I don't know and of course David Bowie would be like well I'm not doing that you know I might grant the interviewer 15 minutes if you're lucky not because David Bowie's pompous far from it just because he's a world away from having to to do what smash hits want them to do yeah um yeah. so there would there would be a constant battle and I remember we finally got David Bowie you know uh which was a thrill because the truth is, most of the people in the office, their favourite artist would have been David Bowie. But in, mm. in terms of the smash hits hierarchy of 1986-89, he was not near the top, you know. Um, no. And David Bowie, of course, always talked about being a chameleon, you know, and how, you know, he would be a chameleon and, uh, you know, he would adapt shape for the times. And, of course, we had an art director who decided, therefore, to illustrate the entire feature. With chameleons, you know, sort of weaving their way around. <laughs> I can't quite believe we did it. And th- his people went nuts, you know, because it was um, a sign of disrespect to the great man. I suspect David Bowie himself probably didn't, never saw it or cared. But yeah. but you, you had this constant clash, you know, that where maybe we did go a bit too far, where we would think, well, we're smash hits. We're big enough. You know, we're selling a million copies, so you can come in on our terms. Mm-hmm. And they, at the absolute highest echelons, they would say, listen, this is Mick Jagger. He's not going to answer a question about, has he ever grown parsnips in a gumboot, you know? <laughs> and we'd say, well, I'm afraid we're going to ask him that. <laughs> <laughs> so you just had this, uh, this lovely kind of irreverence. I think another important thing to stress is it was never vicious. Swanchips no. with no interest in the private lives and, you know, the traditional kind of Fleet Street uh, gossip around pop stars, mm-hmm. no interest whatsoever. We were always interested in, in in taking a pop star and getting them to look at look out, look at the outside world, you know. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Does your mother play golf? Uh, <laughs> you know, it was never what color do you, uh, socks you wear. It was never, you know, interested in who you may or may not be sleeping with. It had this yeah. it was playful. I think that was the key word. It was playful. Yeah. And affectionate. Um, but it also realized that nobody really is interested in the new album or where you recorded it or how you got that amazing bass sound. What we're yeah. interested in is just having some fun with you and taking the reader on a journey with you. And the really good pop stars, the Robert Smiths, the Morrisseys at the time, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Kylies, they, they got us. They knew what it was all yeah. about and they played along with it. And of course, they benefited us did the magazine as a result. With the greatest regret, I'm going to I'm going to move on from Smash Hits, so I could sit here yes, all day. I, um, um, I've just done a three hour podcast on Smash Hits. There's a whole. <laughs> I, and yesterday, I was interviewed by a TV company who are doing a documentary. I mean, it's become. I remember talking to James Brown, former editor of Loaded, mm-hmm. and James saying he makes more money now out of having been the editor of Loaded twenty five years ago than he did when he was the editor of Loaded. And it's a bit like Smash Hits, not making money, but I am asked more about Smash Hits now than I was when I was editing the thing 35 years ago. Uh, basically what's happened is all of the kids like me that it was their first magazine subscription are now all journalists <laughs> we're all, we were all inspired to go out and ask cheeky questions I mean, of people anywhere i go in the world when i do my ppa talks you know and i obviously i try to interest people in the ppa and they're mildly interested i talk about fhm and empire and they perk up a bit and then my joker card when I could see them falling asleep after lunch at some conference in wherever, literally mm-hmm. anywhere in the world. And I say, oh, I, um, I used to be the editor of a magazine called Smash Hits. Instant, you know, a pearl goes up around the room. <laughs> yeah, People yeah, are yeah, suddenly yeah. listening, you know. It, it, it's, it, <laughs> on a minor scale, it's like, it's like you're in the Beatles 50 years ago. That's all people want to talk about. <laughs> I don't mind. I'm happy with that. Yeah, but not a lot of people get to yeah, have been in the Beatles exactly. or to have edited I'm Smash very, It, so it's not a bad very thing. Very proud and happy to have done it. You mentioned Empire then, and of course that was the next thing, was being the founding editor of that incredibly much-loved title uh, as well. But I'm interested what your vision was for the magazine at the start. It was really simple, actually. It was, I mean, it was two things. It was a movie version of Q. So mm-hmm. Q magazine had launched in 86 by the same company, EMAP. So mm-hmm. the pitch to me and the pitch that I then used to recruit people and the pitch to the readers was, this is like a film version of Q. Um, mm-hmm. And then the sort of more universal um, remit was, this is a film magazine that is going to help you spend your money on a Friday night wisely. And all film mm-hmm. magazines up until the... Yeah, of course, when I went for the, again, the interview process, um, a guy called Tom Maloney, who was the managing director of EMAP, said, we want you to come off Smash Hits and we want you to, to become editor of the film version of Q. And I said, I don't know anything about films. In fact, I can't even say the word, films. I don't know anything about <laughs> films. And he said, that's why you'd be perfect for it. Now, that gives you a real insight into what it was we were trying to do. We wanted a magazine that wasn't put together by film buffs for mm. so it's put together by people who loved going to the cinema and watching Jaws, you know, The Godfather, mm-hmm. um, and being able to say to your to, to potential readers, we know you, you know, we know you'd love to see all of these. You got a limited amount of time, you got a limited amount of money. 
we will point you in the right direction. So we used to review every film. We used to review every video that came out. Mm-hmm. And I remember just before the magazine started, The Guardian rung me up. You know, there was a PR piece on it. And they said, what's your favorite film? And I knew what they, I knew what the right answer was. The right answer was, is always Citizen Kane. You know, you always have to get, or possibly Metropolis by Fritz Lang. And just to kind of put our stall out, I said, The Great Escape. Because The Great Escape is not really my favorite film, but it's the type of film that the type of people who were going to get Empire, they would get why I was saying that. It's a Mm. populist mass Christmas Day, family together, whistling along with the theme tune, you know. So we were very different from the start. Um, and we were lucky in the sense that nobody saw it coming. You know, the, the existing titles, Time Out and Sight and Sound and Film Review, I think, thought, who are these smash hits, upstarts, you know? So did that. <laughs> and kind of by the time they wised up, we were selling 100,000 copies. Did you face any teasing issues? You basically, I mean, nobody in Hollywood knew, nobody in Hollywood had, to some extent, had heard of Great Britain, never mind heard of Empire, mm. you know, so this is before, this is before the same day release, you know, this is when movies would be released in America, and then six months later, they'd be released in Britain. So mm-hmm. for the first two to th- two years, probably, it was just this slightly depressing series of visits, you know, quite fun actually going to Hollywood, obviously, but turning up every three months or ringing them and trying to impress upon them that, that, that number one, Britain kind of mattered in terms of box office. Mm. Secondly, that there was this magazine called Empire that actually was starting to sell quite a few copies, you know. We also, yeah, I think we also, and also it's another, I think, learning, key learning, as they say, for, <laughs> for anyone, is that we had no access. We were never going to get to interview Jack Nicholson because he'd never heard of us. And therefore, yeah. we had to be really inventive because we wanted to put Jack Nicholson on the cover. So we would get Tom Hibbert to write, I don't know, 50 things you never knew about Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was in many ways far more entertaining and far more on brand, although we would never have used that ghastly expression then, than <laughs> an interview with Jack Nicholson waffling on about his latest film that nobody was going to go and see. And then Hollywood, in turn, started to realise, well, if we don't want, you know, we don't want these kind of loose cannons doing this kind of piss-taking of Jack Nicholson. Um, (laughs) So we better let them speak to him. And we started gradually to get access. You do mention the the kind of the difference there, or point out the difference there between the kind of pop stars and the Hollywood stars. And there is a massive difference yeah. between the people around um, those groups. It was, yeah. I mean, I remember somebody saying to me, Hollywood is like the music industry with not, with three knots or six knots added on. You know, it was such a, yeah. such a, it's such a vast, you know, and it, it took me a while to get my head around it, you know, because I, the truth is I probably wanted to stay on Smash Hits another year because you know, I think it used to be, I know it's very different now, but you would sort of do three years as an editor. You know, one, getting rid of the people you wanted to get rid of and bringing in the people. <laughs> two, <laughs> sorry, two, <laughs> two, really making it your own and like really flying. Uh, yeah. And three, you kind of kick back a bit and start to enjoy it and go on a few trips. 
and then four doing a victory lap, you know. So yeah. I didn't, you know, I was sort of vaguely interested. Oh, yeah, Vampire, you know, I kind of like going to the cinema. But it took me a while to, to fully understand just the sheer, a lot of the nonsense just that goes on, you know, in Hollywood. And again, I was still quite young and I was relatively inexperienced. I, you know, I just edited Smash Hits. Um, but you would also you would also find yourself, you know, in in the most unique, amazing positions because you were the editor of Empire. So even though they'd never heard of us, we would apply to get press credentials at the Oscars. Mm-hmm. So off I went, you know, to the Academy Awards, 1990, 30 years ago. Um, and again, because you're not a threat, because you're, you can sort of get in and around everywhere, you know, so I would just stand there and on the red carpet, you know, and watch them come past, you know, Nicholson, mm-hmm. Warren Beatty, you know, um, Angelica Huston, Kevin Costner, just this sort of, you know, wow. Um, and it's the first time I've ever heard the question, uh, who are you wearing? Mm-hmm. That was the first time yeah. I ever heard that was at the Oscars. And the usually actresses would stop and say, oh, you know, this is George Ormani, whatever. And you started to get a, a sense of the scale of this world, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I did that for three years. Uh, highlight or low light being when I was at a party somewhere in central London and ended up with Warren Beatty. Uh, <laughs> Warren Beatty, one of the most boring men I've ever met. I hate to disappoint people. Started, <laughs> started lecturing me on what we should be doing with Empire, what I should be doing with the magazine, because to this point it had started to become a bit of a thing. Wow. And I thought, I didn't tell you how to do that terrible acting routine you did in Ishtar or whatever. But anyway, um, <laughs> it did turn the head after a while. You know, I did two Oscars, two, two, two Academy Awards, and I did, you know, Cannes every year. And it was, looking back on it, absolutely fantastic. I cannot deny it. Um, and I did it for three years and moved on in about 92, 93. I actually have to confess that I didn't realise you'd also been the launched editor for Heat. I don't talk about that one as much because it didn't work out well at first. I mean, but that is interesting. I mean, it eventually sold incredible numbers, but at the launch, would it be fair to say it was a bit of a disappointment? <laughs> yes, it was about six weeks away from from closing. Yeah, I mean, I did Empire till about 93, and then I sort of did was like managing editor, managing director, you know, publishing director. I moved across into... into mm. The management side, but again at EMAP, it was there was a very thin line between church and state. It was all a bit blurred, and you were expected as an editor to understand the business end of the operation and vice versa, you know. So mm-hmm. um I was probably more launch director of hate rather than editor. So I was I headed up the project. So I was managing mm-hmm. director of Project Heat. I can't even remember what Project Tyson it might have been. Project J. All of these different names. So I was responsible yeah. for for taking it from idea to launch. Um, and yeah, I mean, without going into all the detail, this is this is now twenty years ago, ninety eight, ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Heat was very much meant to be and modelled on being a British version of Entertainment Weekly. And Entertainment yeah. Weekly was the big successful. Uh, weekly entertainment title, hence the name, published by at that time Time Warner. And I seem to remember we we almost did a deal, I think, at EMAP with Time Warner to publish Entertainment Weekly on license. Anyway, it turned out we didn't do that. We did our own thing. Um, 
And it was a huge launch. You know, it was predicated, I think, on selling, let's say, a quarter of a million copies a week uh, mm-hmm. in order to justify the amount of money we spent on it. And it was pretty apparent within the first the first few weeks we were selling more like 40,000, 50,000, mm-hmm. i.e. 200,000 a week short. That's like 800,000 a month short. Time, yeah. Times £1.50, times whatever. I think, to cut it... A long story short, I think we were about six weeks away from pulling the plug mm-hmm. because obviously there's a limited amount that even a company like EMAP could afford to invest. Um, and I think the lesson from that was sometimes you have to completely rip it up and start again, you know, because yeah. the temptation is to tinker, to tinker around the edges because you don't want to let go of the central vision. This is entertainment weekly mm-hmm. for the UK and that's going to work. And as it became apparent that that wasn't going to work, you've also got to be big enough, I think, to get out of the way. And there was another group of people within EMAP saying, no, 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 what it should be is, 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 a, is a woman's magazine, a woman's weekly, mm-hmm. you know, looking at celebrities, um, which probably to the, to the people who had been behind Empire and Smash Hits and these other titles might have seemed a bit reductive. So we got out of the way. Uh, I was actually, I was sent to the Gulag. I was sent to Paris for a year. It was actually pretty <laughs> pleasant, but to some extent to get out of the way, let them get out. Mm-hmm. I would often launch the FHM in France, a new group of people came in, particularly Mark Frith, Ian Burt. Mm. And of course, from being six weeks away from from closing, it suddenly started to work because it was completely repositioned. Everything changed, the entire team, Mm -hmm. the proposition. And whether through luck or or, or whatever, at the same time, a TV program called Big Brother was starting, and the Mm. two just started bit by bit to kind of grow and grow and grow and grow. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, of course, in my CV, it looks great, it says, the man who launched Heat, and that sounds like a success story, but actually uh, there are some people who will never cease to remind me I launched the first version of Heat, which <laughs> which wasn't quite a roaring success, the second one was, but I'm so glad it was. You mentioned there the kind of management side of publishing, yeah. um, and you did, I mean, you did have a pretty long time in the management yeah. side of publishing. Was it a steep learning curve to begin with, though, because it is—I mean—it is a different uh, set of skills in some ways. It is. There were certain things. There were certain things that I suppose I never fully got on top of. And but again, you know, I think I think if you're if you're if you're smart enough, you you, you realize there are some really good people around you who are very very good at finance uh, or technology or procurement or. So I never, you know, I never delved too deeply into those areas. And EMAP had this wonderful, I'm sure all companies have to some extent, a very good, a very good um, contrast between a very, you know, creative bunch of people over here and a very kind of business-oriented group of people over here. Now, there was a blur between the two, and I certainly blurred those two. Because mm-hmm. it wasn't as if I stopped taking an interest in the front cover uh, from, a, from a creative point of view, but I was also increasingly starting to get involved with advertisers and with distribution and to some extent with 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 finance. But we had very strong central teams and EMAP doing those kind of, you know, mm. slightly less glamorous side of the industry, if you like, who were brilliant at that stuff. 
So I never felt, I never sort of felt it sold my soul or anything, you know, to the, to the <laughs> devil at the crossroads. I mean, I was always, you know, I always still led the way on, on, you know, who was in the cover and whether we were selling enough copies and whether the editor was the right editor. A lot of it was just people skills. Um, uh-huh. and, and it worked brilliantly, I would say, until probably the early noughties. Is that what we call that decade now? The sort of just after, yeah. just after the, I think that's stuck. <laughs> just after the millennium, when things started to go spiral a little bit out of control in a number of ways. And I, you know, I think you probably get to a point, anyone in their career, I think, where you maybe stay a little bit too long, which is partly why I'm determined not to do that at the PPA, you know. Mm-hmm. And I did 21 years of EMAP, which is, you know, it's a lifetime. Um, yeah. And I think in retrospect, I should probably have done 15, um, mm-hmm. you know, which is, which is still a lot. Um, but there's only so many times you can reinvent you. Well, there's only so mm-hmm. many times, you know, you can you can work up, you can t- tinker with the back section or the front pages. or um, And it was wonderful. You know, I've, I've, I do feel incredibly blessed. You know, I'm looking back a lot now because I'm doing a lot of these interviews because of where I am and, my, uh, you know, about to move on from the PPA. And the, mm-hmm. the overwhelming feeling is getting gratitude and, oh, my God, how lucky was that, you know, to have, to have yeah. been part of that incredible ride, you know. You mentioned PPA there, and we've talked a little bit about how you're feeling about moving on, but what would you say, looking back, are your proudest moments in this job? I think, I mean, when I, I arrived in February 2010, um, and it was, it was not in, the PPA was not in good shape. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, again, without... Without dredging over all the detail, there had been a, a man called Ian Locks who had run the place very well for about 20 years, 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I know Ian, you know, and he'd done a very good job and kept it very stable. And then there'd been somebody else who had come in for 15 months, you know. And it, tends to, it tends to happen when the tenure only lasts 15 months. It hadn't gone well. So mm-hmm. I think I suppose the first thing that I was most proud of, I guess, was 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 keeping it going, really. I mean, you know, you, one, one forgets, because mm. 10 years ago, look, the first six months, and most of 2010, looking back on it, were, were trying to bring people back into the fold. You know, it's mm-hmm. a membership association. You know, it, it, only, it only exists if the members wanted to exist. Um, and we had certain members at that time who, 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 who just sort of had enough of it. You know, so I, uh, part one was keeping people in, kind of circling the wagons. And then I think I said what I'm, what I'm proudest of is is bringing everybody together under a new umbrella. Mm. That's really been the message of the last 10 years. Now, that manifests itself in in, in some obvious ways, like the festival and the award. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, underneath it all, I think, I like to think the industry, as I depart from that role, is more united and together than it ever mm-hmm. was. And thank God, you know, because with something like COVID, but not just with yeah. COVID, with other existential threats to the industry around digital advertising and around the supply chain, um, mm-hmm. you couldn't, we couldn't keep going if we were fractured the way we'd been 10 years ago. Um, yeah. But we take it for granted now that, that, that at relatively short notice, 
the PPA can get, you know, the, the top, the, the 10 chief executives of the top, of the big 10 biggest companies into a room under a PPA umbrella to talk about anything. That was not mm-hmm. the case in 2010. So I'm probably proudest of the fact that I've left it, I think, in, in a more united form than it's ever been. And more generally, I mean, after 40 years, what is the best thing, do you think, about working in magazines? I always, I mean, when I do my talks, you know, to, to students, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I get very enthusiastic, you know, as you know, because I, why, 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 why wouldn't you, you know? And I always say to them, look, if you want to go and earn a load of money, go and work for, I don't know, a hedge fund or <laughs> one of those businesses that we don't really understand how they work and it all looks a bit dodgy, you know. Um, <laughs> if you want to have the time of your life and you want to make a difference at some level, um, but if you want to have the time of your life and, and, and just, you know, enjoy a wonderful ride, then have you ever thought about journalism and particularly magazine journalism? Now, I know that that's, that's me and I. some people would say, that was a golden era. And to some extent, and there were certain things about it that are harder now. But mm. I still think that, that at, a, a, at a basic level, the fun you can have and the creativity and the freedom um, and just the opportunities you get to do the most astonishing things are still there. You know, and I, and I yeah. don't, that's not just me and my old mates. You know, that's, I constantly talk to new editors coming in and new groups of people and 30 under 30, and I go out and talk to journalism students, and I can tell when I go out and do those classes, those three over there are the ones who are going to make it and have a fantastic run. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's still there. It's harder and it's smaller, and it's, it, but it's still there, and um, we still need really bright, creative people, you know. What is it then about the three over there? Is there, is there you know, something that kind of marks people out? Yes, it's a curiosity more than anything. I think the single most important mm-hmm. thing... The single most important quality I'd be looking for when I go out and do those talks or as an employer is curiosity. You know, if you mm-hmm. get people in, they think they don't really bother, they don't really care how the world works or then, you know, go and go and do something else. I think you have to have a kind of, how does that work? You know, what's that all about? What's he like? You know, a sort of nosiness to some extent. Uh, <laughs> yeah. People watching, you know, what makes things tick on a slightly left of centre worldview you know um mm. and just the very fact that they're usually the three who come up and talk to me at the end say yeah. is enough you know because they're they're putting aside their natural reticence or slight shyness or embarrassment to think okay here's the guy from the ppa he used to do this this and this he's probably worth talking to and at the very least he's going to be able to give me an address to get work experience on vogue which is what we (laughs) want, you know, and that's fine. (laughs) That's absolutely fine. You know, we all start somewhere. So it's a curiosity and a kind of a slight pushiness, a restlessness, you know. Uh, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, But yeah, I mean, I'm not blind to the changes, you know, because I've lived through it, but I do still Mm -hmm. think 
it's absolutely a career and a life worth following. I can't let you go without asking you what your ambitions are for the future. As you know, I am badgering you for that book that I feel is, is there somewhere. But um, but but what what in fact are your ambitions and not my ambitions for you, Barry? Well, I mean, it's I think it's probably three things. I mean, one is I don't want to disappear from the PPA. I think it's the right time for me to step back from the five day a week. You know, full on. Ten years is a long time. Um, Mm. But, I, you know, I still very much want to be there at the awards, you know, at the festival and, and working on those events, you know, and helping the industry, I suppose. You know, I've got that point. I remember that, you know, the, the late, the sadly now late great Terry Mansfield said to mm-hmm. me, there are three stages to anybody's life, uh, learning, earning and returning. Uh, it's very Terry. Anybody who knows Terry can hear him say that. And there's a point mm-hmm. that you do get to a certain age, you know, and I have just had a significant birthday and it wasn't my 40th um, <laughs> or the one after, um, where you do start to think about, okay, I've got all the experience. I've done 40 years. We're incredibly lucky. How can I start to give that back? You know, and I, know I don't mean in a charitable way, in a kind of useful, practical way. How can I? So I think the first thing is looking at some kind of non-exec roles, where, you know, mm-hmm. you're not there five days a week. But I, so I've, I've just joined the board of IPSO, the Independent mm-hmm. Press Standards Organization, which is the old PCC. So I'm kind of representing mm-hmm. magazines on that for the next three to five years, I think it is. And that's, you know, a definite shift in, in gear and one where you can use a host of experience to, to help the people working at Ipso deal with things like Caroline Flack and deal with, you know, COVID and deal with, with all mm-hmm. that other stuff. Um, so a little bit of PPA, a little bit of non-exec. And then I do, yeah, I want to write something. And I, 15 years ago, when, or 12 years ago, when I left EMAP, and before I joined the PPA, I did a lot of journalism writing. And mm-hmm. I don't know if I want to do that. I want to write something. Um but I don't know what I don't know what it is yet. And I've got an agent <laughs> who um, is harassing me and saying, "This is the perfect time, you know. There's nothing else to do. You're all locked up. Why don't you write something?" And I say, "Let me just let me just do the PPA bit first. I've got to speak to Laura. Uh, yeah. And uh, but at some point, I'm going to write something and hopefully get it, get it published, which will which will be something to do with some of the things I've just talked to you about. Watch this space." Thank you for joining us for another edition of PPA Scotland Magazine Stories. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe at your podcast provider of choice. And we'd love it if you could leave us a review. Those star ratings on Apple Podcasts really mean a lot to us. Next week, we catch up with the Skinny's editor-in-chief, Rosamond West. She makes a powerful case for the importance of arts journalism and discusses how she came to edit one of Scotland's leading cultural voices. I hope you'll join us then. I have been Laura Kelly Dunlop and this has been PPI Scotland Magazine Stories.